Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, let's go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians together. Uh, we're getting more and more, uh, how do I say this, longing, but also maybe excited for one day to finally be together again, maybe some more normal activities. Uh, but uh, as we wait, we will try to love our neighbor, obey our government, and uh, be patient. Let's go ahead and uh, read together, just finish up chapter one last week, and today we'll begin uh, working on chapter two. This morning we will cover verses 1 through 3, but it's really part of the larger context of 1 through 10. So we're going to read 1 through 10 uh, for the context, and then we'll pray. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, together we pray, hallowed be your name. We praise be to you. You are holy. Uh, may, may we together love and respect you and your holy name. We desire that we would see things as you see them. We want our kingdom to be not the thing that rules us, but rather your kingdom. We ask that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in our hearts, in our church, in our city as it is in heaven. Our sins of this week are many, Lord. Our good works are few. Forgive us. We find rest in you and ask for your continued grace and mercy. Supply us with the holy bread this morning. Give us sustaining food in your word. We pray for blinded eyes to see, for slaves to be set free and for your people to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they may know you better. Our eyes look to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As a kid growing up, um, we didn't have a lot of options as far as movies go. Uh, mostly as whatever my aunts would send to us and we'd be able to view on the old VHSs that they had taped. Um, but other than that, it was, you know, regular broadcast television if something came on and we caught it. And if it was on the three channels that we had, sometimes four if the weather was good. Um, you know, but other than that, there was one other place, which was the library. 
Ah, yes, the library. I can remember uh, my sisters and I going to the library, and I think they had maybe like eight movies that we were actually allowed to watch. Um, but every week, at least it felt like that, maybe it was every other week we would go and we'd get one of these movies, so we'd watch at home. And I'm sure I'm only remember the parts that I can remember or want to maybe, but I feel like there was only a few options, like, uh, like Where the Red Fern Grows, uh, Milo and Otis. Uh, I think we had Old Yeller. The old Swiss Family Robinson, um, and then you know Charlie. Oh yeah, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. A couple of those types of things, and some cartoon movies. But the one that I can remember the most, that definitely got the most viewing time once we found out about it, was The Princess Bride. Um, and there's a scene in this movie where Wesley's friends take his dead body to Miracle Max. And you probably know exactly what I'm going at here. And, and they're, they're in trouble, and they need his help. They, they, they actually need a miracle, thus Miracle Max. And some of you know what scene I'm talking about. Um, but they get him on the table, and Miracle Max tells them that they are lucky. You know, it just so happens that your friend here is mostly dead. You know, uh, and, and he says, what do you mean? You know, well, mostly dead means slightly alive. You know, and, and it takes a little bit of convincing, but eventually they get Miracle Max to, to do his work and get on the job, and he creates a miracle pill. If you remember, covered in chocolate and all that that's supposed to get him back to life. The good news in all this is that the pill does work. Uh, the mostly dead man comes slowly back to life and is able to storm the castle and rescue the princess, and, of course, it ends happily ever, ever after. Now, why in the world is it important that we talk about this movie? Well, in the grand scheme of things, you know, the movie's probably not that important. Um, but the scene at Miracle Max's house portrays what many people think to be true about their spiritual state before God. Uh, the world over has all kinds of thoughts about evil and good and whether man is partly good or all good or if he is bad. Well, lots of thoughts on this. And some hate the idea that any of mankind is inherently bad at all. And instead, they argue that every person has some good in them. Underneath all the, the petty problems, each person is actually selfless and loving and good. And then you have other peoples who are, people who are a little more nuanced, and they, uh, you know, they, they think of humans that they arrive on this planet with a, a tabula rasa, like a, a blank slate, something that has to be shaped through their experiences and through their situations and surroundings, environment, and their community of people. And this philosophy says that there's no innate data that you come pre-programmed with. Our hearts and mind don't have a natural bent at all, but that our life experiences build us into the moral creatures that we are. But then there's those who will admit the sinfulness or the wickedness or the badness of man, but that this spiritual deadness, you know, if we must call it that, is just like what Miracle Max said. I mean, people aren't all dead, they're just mostly dead. You know, uh, of course that means if someone is mostly dead, then they're slightly alive. Like, like, there's, like there's a chance that everyone could possibly just get, with the right help, get alive. Now, so I ask the question, is, is this what Paul is telling us here in Ephesians? That we are mostly dead? Um, were we just in a bad place, you know, and that um, 
What we need is to get ourselves to God, the healer, who's the only one who can take the spark of life inside of us and give us that miracle pill of Jesus' atoning work on the cross, revive us to full spiritual life. I mean, it seems like a good analogy, idea that Paul uses. It seems like then, if we do it that way, that everyone at least has a little bit of a chance you know, to have true spiritual life. It's all a real opportunity for them, and they still need the miracle worker God, of course, to work salvation, but this gives everyone a chance. I mean, this seems good, right? Paul does not teach that mankind is basically good. It probably doesn't surprise you. Paul also does not teach that we are a blank slate. And Paul does not teach that we are mostly dead. Paul begins chapter 2 with the statement, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Our understanding of this phrase and the next two verses is critical to our understanding of salvation and what God actually did and what we needed. These statements will have a profound impact on the way that we see ourselves and the way that we treat Christ and his grace to us. What Paul says here is harsh and dark, and extremely heavy. And to be honest, just, just to let you prepare yourselves, it's really hard to hear. I mean, for everyone, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're a child or you're an adult, whether you're black or white or Asian, whether you're a believer or a non-believer, it is difficult. It doesn't matter. This is weighty stuff, and the subject matter that we're delving into is difficult for the whole human race. Paul is about to level with us so that we can have an accurate picture of ourselves in ultimate reality. Like you and I look around and we see people living, I mean people who are breathing, doing, thinking, talking, and they seem very much alive. But Paul offers us a vision of what God sees and therefore a vision of what is the truth. This is important. Up to this point in the letter so far, I mean, Paul opened up with that initial greeting, starting verses 1 through 2. And then 3 through 14, we know we had this spe- specific eulogy or a benediction, this praise to God, which both praised God for who he was and how he acted, but he also very much taught us and the Ephesians and those that would read this letter of God's great work in salvation. He then prays for them, and in so doing, he begins with a thanksgiving, thanking the Lord for this work in these people. And then he goes on to kind of talk about things as he prays for the believers, prays specific things for them. We know he talks eventually, once he gets to the point about power and praying that they would know the power of God, that he talks about the resurrection and the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus Christ, that he is the ruler over all things, the head over all things and given to the church. And this is where we ended last week, end of chapter 1 knowing that the resurrected King Jesus now sits at the right hand of God with all power and authority. All things are put under his feet, and we enjoy him as a gift to us. Our head, Jesus, the head of all things, over anything that is named, he is our king. And we wait for the day that he will return to consummate history, the day that he will unify all things and forever stop the work of his enemies and give them over to eternal judgment. If you remember how we, uh, we set this up, 
he prayed that we would know three main things. Last week, we, we talk, kind of talked about this the week before. Know the hope of his calling, that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and then lastly, that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe. Now, he didn't touch, talk too much and explain too much about those first two, the hope of his calling, the riches of his great inheritance, but when it came to his power... Paul stopped and took an extra four verses to explain what he meant, to describe that power. By the end of chapter 1, we are convinced that the power of God's action in Christ is real. That Jesus is the ultimate ruler of the universe, like we said. And that we are feeling, by that time, pretty small and almost insignificant and somewhat, in a sense, removed from this cosmic, all-powerful king. So what Paul's going to do is he's not going to leave it out there big picture only, but he's going to kind of zoom in a little bit and continue to proclaim the great power of God, but at this point he is going to turn to us, individuals. He's going to come from the heavenlies for a moment down to us and where we're at. Um, or as we're reading here, he is talking to the original readers of this letter to the Ephesians. He's talking to Gentile Christians. He knows that what he has just told them can seem otherworldly and lofty and like, great, thanks for telling me. What does it have to do with me? And um, he knows it's true. So in chapter 2, Paul is going to tell them exactly what it has to do with them. And he's going to begin by telling them about their identity. He's going to talk about who they are, but to do that, Paul's smart. He's actually going to go back to tell them more about who they were to begin with. He's going to do this. Uh, you know, and the truth is, if I can just make a little aside, the glory for us as Christians in this whole passage is that these verbs are in the past tense. Just think about that for a moment. He says this in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In this passage, there are three major problems that Paul is trying to communicate to us. First, you were dead. Second, you were enslaved. And third, you were condemned. Uh, Paul is putting forth an argument that at ev on every account, by themselves, there is absolutely no hope for humanity. So let's go ahead and look first at the first major problem. Verse 1, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, what is Paul talking about here? I mean, obviously, if you're watching this, you're breathing, and you're probably seeing, and you're probably acting very much alive. I mean, we're not physically dead, right? So what is he talking about here? What does he mean by dead? Well, it gives us a clue here, right, as he finishes out the phrase. He shows us that the thing that is associated with this death is our actions in walking in trespasses and sins. And he purposefully uses two different Greek words there, to cover all wicked actions. Uh, the sins of acting out or, or disobeying a law, that would be trespassing, or something where you don't do what you're supposed to do. That would be the idea of sin. 
he says that we walked in trespasses and sins. In other words, it is our lifestyle, our behavior, the way that we walk through this world. We are characterized by these sins. And because of this, because of our active rebellion and our failure to obey his moral law, we were dead. But you might say, okay, I get that, Chris. Like you're saying dead, but that doesn't seem like you're connecting dead to sin quite yet. Yeah, I understand. There seem to be very many people that are still very much alive. I mean, they, people work and they play well in their bodies and they, they think well with their minds and they have engaging and witty and lively personalities. Like, they don't seem very dead to me. How can the Bible call them dead? And what does he mean by that? Yes, they have rebelled and I can see that. I get all that. But, you know, how can you call them dead? It's true. A person who uh, is not a Christian can have a body and a mind and a personality that can be very much alive. And yet the Bible calls this person dead. In all these ways, they seem alive. Uh, but how can they be dead? Although their minds are sharp and they're reasonable and they can understand logic, they cannot see the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ as king. They are blind and deaf to the will of their creator. And they willingly reject God and his law. And they obey their own law. Or at least the ones that make the most people happy around them so that they can get along. And in this, what we're talking about is sin against God. And in this sin, they are separated from God. I mean, you know this. We understand that God cannot dwell with sin. And because he is holy and just, he must reject the sinner and react with divine punishment against that sin. Isaiah 59.2 says this, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin separates us from God. But when we say that we, we know that this doesn't sound that bad, though, like, okay, we know that we're separated from God, but I'm still here. Everything seems fine. I can still go to work. I can still kind of live out a decent life. How is this that bad of a thing? I mean, most people think of God as a crutch or as, a, you know, like an add-on to a, a pretty, pretty good life already. And so, you know, when you tell them that they are separated from God— Many, if they're honest, will say, okay, what, what's, what's the big deal? Like, why is that so bad? Like, you go to church, so is your life that much better? It seems like things are going totally fine for me. This response, though, is a warped and blind view of the God of the universe. If a person thinks this way, they do not know the real God of the Bible. Uh, further than that, in reality, they don't know the God of the universe who made them and put the stars in place. The God who created all things with his word is a God of wonder and beauty, eternality, immense depth and sovereignty. He's a God of infinite joy and pleasure who gives to his own. He's a God of all-powerful, holy, gracious, and kind. He is a God who loves and protects his inheritance and crushes all 
of his enemies. So the person who doesn't see that separation from God is a bad thing is not correctly seeing who God is. They haven't seen the true God of the Bible, and this is tragic because they can't see that they are a living corpse. They are dead. When Paul talks about death, you were dead, he is talking about spiritual death. He is talking about the most important death, most ultimate death of all time, separation from God for eternity. When Adam sinned, he did not immediately physically die. But what he experienced was something far worse. He died spiritually and was separated from God's presence, kicked out of the garden because of his sin against the righteous creator, the God who had made him and loved him. We'll get back to Adam in a bit, but for now, consider what this means for us. As we walked in our trespasses and sins, we willingly acted against God and his moral law. We disobeyed him, and because of it, we were separated from God and his presence forever. Our sin separates us from God. And this, this separation that we're talking about, this is true and ultimate death, the kind that lasts for eternity. This death is a state or a condition of alienation from God. I mean, consider that Paul actually talks about this later on in Ephesians 4.18. He says, they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. This kind of death is the most tragic. I mean, think about this. Human beings, the pinnacle of creation, created by God, created for God, even created to find ultimate pleasure in God, now are living without God, separated from Him. In fact, actually against him. Paul says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. That's our first major problem. But let's look at the second major problem here. Not only were we dead, we were enslaved. Now, admittedly, you're not going to see the word enslaved in this passage, but I want you to follow me for a minute. You'll see it pretty quickly here. He says in the next part of verse 2, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. I mean, Paul isn't starting something new here. He's actually just expanding. He's doing this whole thing together. He, he just told us that we were dead in our trespasses and sin in which we once walked, but now he is going to describe that walk, what it was like for us the horror of subjecting ourselves to these terrible, unloving, wicked masters. Let me break this down for us. There are three influencers, three slave masters that held us in bondage. First, the world. Second, Satan. Third, our flesh. And the first two are easy to see. If you're looking there, you can see the word following. He says that we were following the course of this world. And we are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So first up, Paul says that we are following the course of this world. Now this is a fine translation, but we're not necessarily talking about world as a person. We're not talking about that, but rather Paul is using a term here that he actually used back in 121. 
uh, you know, the course is not quite the right word. It's probably better to translate this statement according to the age of this world. This is the same word that's used back in 121 when he talked about this age or the age to come. Now, that's kind of weird because if you, if you do it literally, it sounds kind of strange there the, you know, that he would be following the age of this world. Well, he's talking about walking in a way that does not care at all about the age to come. Walking according to what you can see right now, right here in this world. The age when Christ will come back, not worried about that. In fact, I'm not even sure if it's real. I'm more concerned about what I can see here and now in this age, in this world. He's saying that we are walking in such a way that was like Christ didn't even exist. It wasn't at all like he will come back. And it's not even all like there's a future past my life at all. And so what dominates me is living here in this area according to the worldly standard that makes sure I make sense of my life. He says that we found ourselves slavishly following after the same thinking, the same ethics, the same doctrines, the same virtues that this present age holds to. If there's no life after, and there's no coming age of the returning king, man, I mean, what do you have to live for? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Why not? Build bigger barns, man. Do it all for here. Live your life here and now. Enjoy it for yourself. Do what's best for you. I mean, obviously, we see this kind of stuff all around us on television, uh, in magazines, in the way that advertising works. We can see this played to constantly. Our culture holds up a very different set of virtues and values for what we should hold dear. Again, we can see this clearly in the tabloids and in movies and world politics, but it's also much more subtle than that. It's in the so-called American dream. It's in the, the influencers in our Instagram and Facebook culture. All these different things and signaling that goes on, whether we know it or not, they influence every person that comes in contact with them. Either they will know it and realize it, or potentially it continues to build into their own hearts the doctrine of the world, of this age. I'm not here to get on a soapbox and preach against these different outlets of worldliness. It's not going to be that helpful. What you do need to know is that here Paul shows us that these people, these Christians are at one time slaves to this culture. And that it's extremely powerful. It holds immense power in the world over. It can be an absolute slave master. And we are described at one time as walking according to or living for this age, this world. This is the first one he talks about. But then second, Paul says that we were also following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, now we know this one, right? This is the famous, the famous statement, hey, the devil made me do it. I mean, that, that kind of gets to what's going on here, but not exactly. He is talking about Satan here. He makes it very clear uh, actually, he makes it even more clear as you go on in the book of Ephesians in 4.27, 6.11, and 6.16. You're seeing very directly that he is talking about Satan, the devil, the evil one. That's who he's referencing here. Matthew 9.34, Satan is called the prince of demons. And then in John 12.31, he's called the ruler of this world. 
interesting combination here with what he just said. This is a reference to the place where the devil doesn't necessarily have authority, but God has allowed him to have a great amount of influence and blind the eyes of unbelievers. I can say that because of 2 Corinthians 4.4. He's extremely powerful. This is what he says. In their case, the God of this world, that's the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is who Paul is talking about. He's talking about Satan. The prince of the power of the air is actively working to show these unbelievers that they can have a good time here to blind them from the gospel of Jesus Christ, to keep them from seeing him clearly. We're following this ruler at one point in our life to the point that we were characterized by disobedience. I mean, look at the words he uses. Paul calls those that Satan influences sons of disobedience. We know the devil is evidently working when we think about things like satanic worship or the occult or secret magical powers and that kind of stuff and demonic activity. I mean, that's very evident, but there's so much more than that. Those are the ones that we see and are like, whoa, stay away from that kind of stuff. But we've already seen here in, in, in Ephesians that it's much bigger than that. Satan and those demons that followed him are no joke. They are powerful. They're wily, they're conniving, they're terrible, and they're murderous. And we were slaves to their cause, hating God. We were enslaved to the age of this world. We are enslaved to Satan, the prince of the power of the air. But third, Paul says that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, before I get to this, I, I kind of want you to see this. Uh, I'll get back to this in a minute. I want you to see how Paul did this. Look at verse 2 again, starting at the beginning. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, verse 3, among whom we once all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Did, did you see the emphasis there? Did, did you see the switch that Paul did? Uh, Paul has been talking about you this whole time. He started in verse 1 talking about you. He's talking about Gentile Christians making you know, um, this extremely personal for them so that they would understand. He's not just talking about cosmic stuff. He's talking about you fitting into that cosmic plan. But it's at this point that he's going to admittedly add himself into the problem that the Gentile Christians had. This is not just about Gentiles, but about Jews. And it's even about apostles. Uh, there is nobody who isn't or wasn't a son of disobedience. Paul includes himself here and admits that the third thing that influenced us was our flesh. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, Probably, if we're honest, this one's the easiest for us to get our minds around. We're very, uh, unfortunately, we, we, we're very familiar with our flesh. We know the struggles. We, we know the power of our urges, whether it's urges that would satisfy our bodies or urges that would satisfy our intellect or urges that would satisfy our pride. I mean, the common denominator in all of these things is us, is me is the center of the universe. 
me. When when Paul talks about the flesh, he isn't just talking about the carnal, fleshly, wicked things that are wrong, but sometimes that we give in to. Paul speaks of the flesh as a way to describe the thing that must be pleased to satisfy me. I mean, sometimes that's fleshly, but he's not specifically only talking about the body. Now, how can I say this? Well, Paul makes it pretty clear right here because he spells it out for us. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, okay, carrying out the desires of the body, yeah, and the mind. He expands and helps us understand here. This is not only, you know, only bodily, fleshly, carnal pleasures that we give into. The flesh really shows up when we talk about sexual lust or our worship of food and gluttony or our extreme love for sleep and leisure and chilling our laziness and satisfying those desires of the body. But this also talks just as much about the desires of the mind. How about jealousy and anger and pride and covetousness and self-righteousness? I mean, Paul says that we all walked according to these things. These are all desires that serve me and me alone, my flesh, not Christ. This is what Paul says that we walked in, that we have walked according to, that we were, in a sense, enslaved to. And so he rounds out our total enslavement by talking about our slavery to our own flesh. We were dead in our sins, walking according to the age of this world, following Satan unknowingly and slavishly obeying our flesh. I mean, what a terrible way to live. And this is the way that Paul describes our lives before Christ. At this point, we've learned that we are not free. We learned that we we were not alive. We were like robots in bondage, obeying our wicked masters because we had absolutely no spiritual life in us at all. We were separated, dead, separated from God. Our state was that of continual sinning against Him. And because of it, we were separated. So these are the first two major problems that Paul brings up for us. But there's one more. The third major problem. Not only were we dead, not only were we enslaved to three different terrible masters and sin, but lastly, we were condemned. We were natural-born children of wrath. In verse 3, Paul says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. When God looked at me, he saw sin, sin, and more sin. And he pronounced the verdict, guilty, condemned, full of sin, prepared for my deserved wrath to be poured out. Wrath for his high treason against me his creator. If you didn't think it was bad enough yet, here we go. Not only were we children of wrath, Paul makes it clear that every single person, he says the rest of mankind also, are children of wrath. So if you weren't paying attention before, guys, if you didn't think that addressing the Gentile Christians or the Jews or apostles was enough, if you didn't think somehow that you didn't fit into any of those categories, He makes sure that we all understand this last problem includes everyone. 
In reality, all three of these problems include everyone. Paul explains that, but he's trying to progressively make an argument that each part of society feels the building up of the weight of the, the problem that each human being has before God. I have a, a great deal of respect for the book of Romans. Um, you know, I think most theological students are intimidated, including myself. It's a treasury of enormous uh, all important theological truths. It's wonderful, but also uh, very difficult to work through. Someday, by God's grace, and if he allows, I will, with trembling, try to preach through the book of Romans. I bring this up, though, because I thought I wasn't preaching Romans. I thought I was preaching Ephesians. I thought I'm now in chapter 2. Good, I should be doing that. Every time so far that I'm already in, in Ephesians here, that I have theological questions, I realize that Paul has not only said it, but potentially expanded on it in the book of Romans. And I find my spell, myself spending more and more time in the book of Romans. Here in Ephesians, we find that Paul is taking three chapters of Romans, chapters 1, 2, and 3, and boiling it down to three important pregnant verses here in Ephesians 2. He's making the case that there is no one that is righteous. Not Jews, not Gentiles, not apostles, not anyone. All are condemned. He says that we are all, by nature, children of wrath. Okay, so we need to talk about this. That statement is so huge. Well, uh, first, children of wrath. Let's talk about that. Yes, that's exactly what you think it is. It, it, it doesn't mean we were all angry children, that we all had, uh, you know, throwing temper, you know, temper tantrums, that that was what we were all about. No, he's just used a very similar construction a few verses, actually a verse will go here in verse 2. He says, sons of disobedience. Uh, yes, that one means that, but like he's showing here that we are characterized by wrath. He's showing us that we are characterized by the wrath that's against us. But whose wrath? I mean, that's the right question. He's not talking about ours. The rest of the canon speaks to this, showing us, especially in the context of sin and sin and sin and more sin against the God of the universe, who's holy and righteous and just. He's talking about the God of the universe, that we have sinned against him. So whose wrath is it? Not our wrath. He is talking about that we are the children of wrath, the wrath of God. Paul's telling us that we are all primed for and deserving of the wrath of God against all of our sin. And this is not like the wrath of man. When you and I think of wrath, we think of you know a bad temper or someone flying off the handle about something or, you know, uh, something about spite or malice or animosity or revenge. God is not like this. He isn't arbitrary or petty. He reacts to real things, those which attack his character, sin. It isn't just cause and effect either, like it's just some sort of impersonal mechanism out there that God allows to exist. One author puts it this way. He says, God's wrath is personal, righteous, just, and consistent. He says it is God's personal, righteous, consistent, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his, resolved, his resolve instead to condemn it. 
This is the wrath of God that was against all of us. But there's another thing here. That's the first part. There's another thing here that probably going to be the hardest for all of us today to deal with. This is the part of the verse that most of us don't really want to deal with. What does Paul mean when he says that we were by nature children of wrath? Is he really saying that unless we are supernatural descendants that we are already condemned? That by nature we're qualified as condemned? Paul's pointing back to our biggest problem, that we all sinned against God in Adam. And that it was at that point that God looked at you and me and said, guilty, condemned. The entire human race bound up in the loins of their father Adam sinned against their God. If we are indeed born of water, as Jesus says to Nicodemus, if we are natural-born human beings, if our father was Adam, then we are all condemned by our sin in him. This phrase, by nature, children of wrath, is a summary of Romans 5, 12 to 14. Uh, I'll just read verse 12 for now. Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Well, to admit, the idea of headship is a little bit foreign to us and maybe strange, but it's not foreign or strange to the Bible. Many times in the Old Testament, the writers speak of the next generation as being already in the loins of the present generation. We were there. Adam isn't the only one that's blamed about all of this, as though somehow we were better. We did it. We incurred incurred guilt, and we died. You see, I just have to say this. I don't think any of us take the fall seriously. I don't think we understand the immense action against God when sin was committed, to not follow his law, to not receive every good gift from him in submission and thankfulness and love. We have to understand that God is and always will be perfect and holy and just. When humanity in Adam chose to disobey God, there were devastating, far-reaching consequences that could only be remedied by a second Adam. The failure of Adam, the trespass and sin of Adam, left us all in a place of absolute hopelessness. The wrath of God was on Adam and all of his children. Paul has made his third point, that the wrath of God is on all humanity. And this, too, is a major problem for us. As we close out in this third major problem, we're left feeling absolutely hopeless. We realize as we look back, as he's put out all three of these problems, that Paul is showing everyone that everyone throughout all of history, all over the world, is in deep trouble. Uh, Trouble that they cannot overcome. He is putting forth an argument that on every account, by themselves, there is absolutely no hope for humanity. There are three um, 
major problems for us, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We are completely enslaved to this world, to Satan and to our flesh. And we were children of wrath. Like every other person who has lived on this planet, we were storing up wrath and the judgment of God against us. Man, I know you're sitting there. Maybe it's sunny this morning, but what a depressing Sunday morning message, right? Like, really, Chris, is this where, is this where you're going to stop for today, man? What do we learn from these truths? Let's go back to the beginning, back to the, the Miracle Max discussion. Everyone needs to make sure that they believe that Princess Bride is what it says it is. It's a fairy tale. The fact that Wesley is mostly dead is great for the fairy tale movement, fairy, fairy tale movie. I mean, but that's exactly all it is, a fairy tale. This is not an analogy that Paul is using to describe our death. We are not mostly dead. We are all dead. All of us are all dead. We weren't just a little bit separated from God, like he just kind of moved a little bit away from us. Our iniquities made a separation between us and God. He had hidden his face from us, according to Isaiah 59. We are, we're all dead. We were slaves to these terrible masters. And to top it off, every person in Adam's race is condemned to die and be punished by the wrath of God. So how are we to respond to these truths? First, I, I just want to address the believer those who love Jesus Christ, who trust in him as Lord. I want to make a couple comments. There's a lot that's been said this morning. Number one, believe that this is true. It has far-reaching ramifications. Paul's not just using flowery language here. He is telling us the truth. He's showing us. Guys, please, please think about this. Don't believe the gospel-attacking lie that mankind is somehow partly, slightly, ever so small, good. We're dead, children of wrath, enslaved to the world, to Satan, and to the passions of our flesh. We are not good. We are 100% dead without Christ. Aliens from God, sinful in every part of us, in me dwells no good thing. Jeremiah, you know this, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We, are, we were dead in our sins as believers. Second, though, not only believe this is true, I want you to feel this. I get the gut level. Realize our problem. Feel this. Be brokenhearted over the rebellion against God. Be sad and saddened and, and humbled by our own sinfulness. I want us to feel the, the sadness and the, the weight and the desperation for someone else to help us. Because unless we see that, that little ounce of goodness there, that thing that says we can bring ourselves to God and then he'll do the rest, is wicked. It's wicked and it's full of pride and boasting. We were 100% dead. Feel that and understand that we must, we must have someone to relieve us from this problem. As Paul cries out, who will deliver me from this body of death? This is the second thing. Third, Christian brother or sister, don't go 
back to those slave masters. Don't visit them again. We still live in this world around us where, at this point, Christ has not come again yet. Satan is still working in the sons of disobedience. The world is still around us. And guess what carry around in my chest day after day after day? My own flesh. But we know that we do not have to be slaves to it any longer. And Christ has set us free. We know it's true. We don't have to go back to this. Romans 6 talks a lot about this. Paul says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Don't return to those old, terrible, murderous, lying masters. They want harm for you, no good whatsoever. Because of Christ, they have no power over you. Do not submit yourselves back to them. But then lastly, let me just read the end of verse 3 again, but with a little bit more. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy. I mean, all is dark and terrible and quiet and hopeless. And through the death darkness, the light of Christ appears. God being rich in mercy. May I remind you that these statements that are made in verses 1 through 3 are all past tense. They're all before. Before Christ, these were true of you. But they're past tense now. They are no longer the thing that holds you. Find hope in this, brother and sister. Look to Christ. He is your all in all. I'm going to get excited about next week because this whole thing turns to show us what we have in Jesus Christ and the power of God expressed to us in him. So please remember, this is not where the passage ends, but rather shows us our desperate state without Jesus Christ. For those of you who are unbelievers that you may be watching today, this, what we're reading today, is a universal statement. It is not true for a few people. It is not a crutch that we hold up to kind of make us do the right things to, to turn to Jesus. Everyone is a son or daughter of disobedience. Everyone is dead in their trespasses and sin. Everyone, by nature, is a child of wrath just like the rest of mankind. For those of you who do not trust Jesus Christ, there is no good in this text. There is nothing that is good for you here. If you do not love Jesus Christ, and he is not your king, these past tense verbs are still present tense for you. All of these things still hold you as their captive. There is still for you stored up wrath. You are spiritually dead, separated from God. They're just truth claims about where you actually currently stand. Today, if you don't know Christ, but you hear these words, this is your call from Christ through a, a simple, stupid servant, Chris Lahounds, telling you that it doesn't end here if you will trust in Jesus Christ. If you will believe that God isn't a liar, that this is true, that your state is desperate without him, there can be salvation for you in the person and work of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. You can have salvation. It's not through me. It's not through coming to church. It's not through watching the silly video. It's through Christ and Christ alone. 
This message, these first three verses, ought to strike fear in your heart and cause you to realize that you need something outside of yourself. You need a Savior. You need a King. You need someone to rescue you. And so, friend, can I plead with you for a moment, by the grace of God, who has given us an opportunity to speak this truth right now, can I plead with you to hear the same encouragement that I gave to the Christians that all those things can be past tense for you too if you'd only trust Jesus Christ to be the true Messiah. The hope of this world, this present age, is Jesus. It is only through him that we can know salvation. Verse 4 is true for all who recognize that Jesus is Lord and that forgiveness of sins can only come through him. There is Mercy, the Bible says that he is rich in mercy through Jesus Christ, the Holy Son. You can have this great salvation through faith in Christ alone. There's no insurance policy thought here. It's not like, okay, I hear what he's saying, and just in case he's right, maybe I'll start coming to church and call myself a Christian. No, there's no like, maybe I kind of do this halfway, become a Christian so I can make sure if Chris is telling me the truth, then by that time, then I'll, you know, I claim to be a Christian and I can make it in. No. A resounding no. Jesus makes it very clear that the call to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is a call to die to all other things. Most importantly, yourself. It's absolute, 100%, complete trust in the saving arms of our Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who can rescue you. But if you do, if you trust Jesus alone, then all those terrible things that were in your past, all that terrible stuff that was past tense for you can be wiped away, can be not true of you any longer. They can now be past tense verbs for you as well. Friend, there is great hope for you today, and it's in the gospel of Jesus Christ, our King the one who one day will come and unite all things in heaven and on earth in himself. But it's only seen properly in the light of our hopeless, terrible, wicked state of depravity and condemnation. Friend, hope in God. Without him, there's only slavery and condemnation and death. But with him, as the Bible tells us so sweetly, there are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you. You are our King. We cannot say enough, Lord, to thank you for your grace and your our redemption. Lord, that you made us your own is astounding. Those who are rebels, who are slaves to all these other passions, to the world and Satan, who are dead, who had separated ourselves from you, who were by nature children of wrath, Lord because of Jesus Christ, as we'll find out in the next couple of verses, because of Jesus Christ, Lord, we were made sons. We were made alive with Christ. We were seated with him, risen with him. Lord, what can we say but glory be to your name? We say together, hallelujah. We praise Jesus Christ, our King. I pray that you would do a work in us this morning, that we would recognize these truths as believers. And Lord, those that can hear this, but they would realize that without you, they are condemned. But Lord, because of your great mercy, they can have this righteousness. They can be called redeemed 
they can be sons and daughters of a living God. We thank you for your immense grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.